Okay, let's take a, let's see, I think, looks like most folks are gone. Most folks have gotten their plates cleared and all the rest. Um, what I want to start off by saying about the, uh, our class, Sacred Doorways, a study of Celtic Christianity, is please understand I'm a student with you. If you were to pull me aside and say, tell me who's the greatest baseball player in the history of Major League Baseball, I could give you about three hours on why it's Willie Mays. You can disagree, but you're still wrong. Uh, uh, if, you, if you pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, I don't understand this verse in, in John chapter 14. Can you help me understand it? I can probably give you 30 or 40 minutes off the top of my head. When it comes to Celtic Christianity, I've spent about 10 hours reading the last couple of days, and I'm just barely scratching the surface. So I, wanna, I just want to be really clear. There's some things I know really well. Uh, I went to, to a Bible college. I went to seminary, got a couple of degrees in seminary. Uh, those kinds of things are, I, I know fairly well. But um, Celtic Christianity is really kind of a new thing for me, although I first got introduced to it. When I went to seminary in 1984 at Emmanuel School of Religion, which is now called Emmanuel Christian Seminary, Anyway, there was a Celtic cross on the, on the top of our chapel where we met for uh, chapel twice a week. And that was the first time I'd ever seen something like that. Um, I grew up in a, in a free church tradition, uh, which was really sort of devoid of many of the rituals and things that are part of our practice here, for example, at, at um, First Community. We didn't do Ash Wednesday. We didn't talk about Lent. We, we didn't do any of those sorts of things. Um, we barely acknowledged that there was a Good Friday. Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday were big fun Sundays. But all the rest of sort of the, the liturgical calendar and, and all that's a part of who we are here in our worship was not a part of what I grew up in. So a lot of these things were brand new for me when I went to, went to seminary. The second thing was, and I'll talk a little bit more about, in fact, I'm going to show some slides uh, from our trip to Scotland. Some of you may have seen a couple of them, but I just want to refresh our conversation around uh, Celtic Christianity was how much uh, we enjoyed being, especially on the Isle of Iona. Anyone here ever been to Iona? Has anyone been? Oh, several of you have. Oh, great. Cool. Um, it's, it's become quickly one of my favorite places. In fact, I sent a text to Julie uh, earlier today while uh, working on this that I was getting excited about going back to Scotland. Um, we're going to Ireland in, in um, uh, when are we going? July. In July, we've got 47 of you signed up to go with us. It's going to be a great, great trip. We're looking forward to that. But um, the, more, the more I've read, the more I study, the, the more interesting all this, this stuff become, becomes to me. So I just wanted to be sure I got that proviso out there. If you ask me a question, I'm like, I have no idea. It's because I have no idea. Um, just, just so we're clear. All right, let's go to the next slide. I love this quote from John McLeod, who's one of the persons. Oh, wait, 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 before I get, leave that slide up there. But before I forget. Um, in amidst the, uh, the voluminous amount of paper on your, on your table, there's a sheet like this with 16-point um, font uh, print for you. It says, Sacred Dores, a study of Celtic Christianity, and it's the outline of what we're going to be doing. We're going to get into an introduction tonight to Celtic uh, Christianity, and then we're going to look at a sacred soul, uh, uh, Pelagius, then we'll, we'll uh, ne use next week the sacred feminine and look carefully at St. Bridget of Kildare. And then sacred earth, which is John Muir. Anybody been to Muir Woods in California? Some of you have been there. One of my favorite places in all the world. It's amazing. You can be in the hustle and bustle of San Francisco, drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, and in about 35 minutes feel like you've just gone to the other side of the world. Uh, we'll look at John uh, Muir. And then we're also going to look at, at uh, John McLeod, who is a, um, uh, a, a Scottish mystic. Uh, a Celtic mystic who um, 
was very, very powerful in helping Iona rediscover itself. He helped to rebuild it, got some grants to do, do all of that. These, these, these are folks who are talked about in John Philip Newell's book, uh, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. Uh, some of you have read that. There are a few who have read that. There's at least one or two. Uh, Steve brought your book. You can have an extra helping of macaroni and cheese <laughs> just, for, just for doing that. Um, I really enjoyed reading this book. That's, that's really providing the, the uh, um, sort of the thumbnail sketches uh, of the four persons that we're going to look at carefully to help us uh, get in, into understanding sacred um, um, Celtic spirituality. And then I, uh, Seth Stearns, who's on our staff, he's now our minister uh, to the spiritual life and learning folks. Um, he gave me this book before I went to uh, Scotland, The Daily Readings with George McLeod, uh, who is the founder of the Iona, Iona community. It was really in disarray for about 200 years. and had fallen apart, was, was crumbling, and really um, and not being used at all. And he really uh, reestablished the Iona community. Um, his writings are tremendous, and I, I would highly recommend those to you. It's called Daily Readings with George McLeod. Anybody who wants to come and get these authors and their names uh, afterwards can, can come up and do so. Uh, he had a, yeah, we're going to talk about this in a moment uh, with all of you. He had this mystical experience uh, after World War I, after witnessing all, the, all the, um, the blood and the confusion and the mud and the ugliness and the horrors of war. Um, he was basically drinking himself to death when he had a, a mystical experience and recognized that wasn't who he wanted to be. And it transformed him into a, a pacifist and, and just a brilliant, brilliant writer and, and thinker. And then if, if, you're, if you want to realize, I get no money from this, just so we're clear. Um, this is Rick Steves' guide to Go Scotland. I've used his guides on trips to the Holy Land, to Greece, to Ireland. I'm, well, I'm going to get the Ireland one, to Italy, to most of Europe where we've traveled. Julie and I have traveled extensively through and other places we visited. What's really cool is the fair and thoughtful way he treats some of the sacred places in Scotland. He has a wonderful uh, page uh, on, on Iona and what you can experience there and what, it, and what it's like. Some of the travel guides I've read and experienced will, will only talk about religious things in light of um, the artwork that's there or the history. Uh, but he actually delves a little bit into the uh, Iona and its founding and, and, and why. All right. So let's start with this quote from John McLeod, the 20th century Celtic mystic that I mentioned. Christians are explorers, not map makers. We say something similar in our church, don't we? Have you heard this phrase before? We're a journey church, not an answer church. We might have answers, but if you have a different idea or a different angle or a different vision of that, we're interested in being with you on that journey to discuss what that might be. Uh, this is the same kind of thought, that Christians are explorers, not map makers. We're, we don't, Christians truly aren't pe people who sit down and say, here's the map to get around spirituality, but rather, let's go explore that. Um, in our church, we, Way back to our very beginning, we were called the Church of the, uh, the Infinite Quest. Always seeking, always listening, never afraid of truth. I've said this before in, in classes and sermons and other settings around the con this congregation. We are never afraid of truth. If the truth comes from a Muslim or a Jewish rabbi or an atheist, we are not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of the source of that truth. Truth is truth, period. And we're always open to hearing and learning from different folks. So I'm going I'm to keep that slide up um, every week at the start of my, my presentation just to remind us that we are not explorers in this. Uh, we are not map makers. We, we are explorers. All right. Now let's, let's have a conversation around the tables. Next slide. I'd love to find out before we get into this 
uh, mystical conversation uh, later on in this discussion. I'd love for you to have a t talk around your table amongst yourselves. A couple of you folks might want to join with a couple of people to make a little uh, a larger circle. Have you ever had a moment, or two or three or five or ten, when you felt close to God, the Spirit, a higher power, Jesus, whatever name works for you? If yes, and you feel comfortable doing so, share that experience with, with the folks there. I'll give you an example for me. In October of, of 2022, Julie and I traveled with our friends Adam and LaVon Hamilton. Adam is a pastor at a Methodist church in Kansas City. And our other friends are uh, Rabbi Art and Leslie Nemetoff. Uh, Art was a, well, he's a retired rabbi now in, in um, Kansas City. Just a couple of just brilliant minds. Their wives are brilliant as well. Totally fun group to travel with. But we stayed at this, what, for three or four days, we stayed at this villa just south of Cinque Terre. Do you know where I'm talking about in Italy? Cinque Terre, the five villages. It's a beautiful spot on the Mediterranean Sea. And one afternoon, the four, the four of them were off uh, hiking around or doing something, and Julie and I hiked down to this uh, point on, uh, uh, below our, our villa, and I was able to, to jump into the Mediterranean Sea and just swim for about 15 minutes. And there was something about, I don't know what, I, mean, I don't, you can't explain mystical experiences, right? But there was just something about the undulation of the waves and just sort of letting it pull me towards the shore, push me towards the shore, that was just sort of overwhelming in the moment. I had to remember to swim. Um, I'm an aging beach boy with the skin cancer spots to prove it, but uh, I used to swim a lot. But there was just something in that moment that I just felt like I'm a part of nature and nature is part of me and God is here. And then Julie came and said, you better get out. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get sick. Um, so around your tables, so, something like that. There's, has there been a time when you felt close to God, the spirit, higher power, to Jesus? If yes, describe that. If you feel comfortable, describe that with the people at your, at your table. James, find a table to jump into there. Right? All right, go. All right. Thank you for sharing. Those of you who did share around the tables, thank you for your willingness to uh, be open and, and share from your experience. Um, I'm just curious, how many of you, not only those who shared just now around the tables, but how many of you, if you're willing to raise your hand, how many of you would say, yes, you've had a moment when you felt close to the Spirit, to God, to, to Jesus at some point? Well, that's almost the entire room. That's amazing. And if you haven't, that's okay too, by the way. Let's just be really clear about that. Um, we're going to do another uh, roundtable discussion at the very, very end, but I thought it, was in, it would be important to discuss uh, around these tables about what, what this experience had been like. And I, I would guess that each person's individual experience wasn't necessarily similar to the others in the room, would that be, or in the, around the table. Would that be, be, be clear? Well, maybe, some, maybe some similarities, may, maybe not. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had three of these really intense ones in my life. Uh, that that um, just kind of blew me away for the day. I know Julie's, I can hear Julie telling one of hers that's a, a, that I used in a sermon, my, I think my first six months here. And, and um, it's a pretty emotional story and it, and it really connected with folks in the, the sermon that day. Um, so we're going to get back, we're going to get back to uh, what, what, what does all this mean uh, towards, towards the end of the, um, our, our time together. But let's, let's move on into the introduction, please. Next slide. All right, this is um, uh, on our, we've now arrived at the Isle of, of Iona on our, our Scotland trip. I think, is, is the full slide, oh, it's cut off a little bit. Anyway, my, my, my photography skills are a little better than that, um, but it's not fitting on the screen that, that's, that's there. Um, uh, when we were in, in Scotland, we started in, 
in, uh, if you know this, the country, started in Edinburgh uh, on the east side, went down to Glasgow, three days in Edinburgh, three days in Glasgow. And in Glasgow, we rented a car, um, otherwise known as the Screammobile, uh, because I screamed the whole time I was driving. Um, and we drove up over to Oban, which is on the coast. Anybody like scotch? Anybody ever had Oban scotch? Uh, there's a, oh, some of you are confessing. Yes, thank you. Um, my wife, Julie, loves Oban scotch. It is, it's the only one that I really like at all. The others I don't care for too much. But you go to Oban, uh, not just for the scotch, but, but primarily that's the place where you, you catch the ferry over to the Isle of Mull, and then you catch a bus on the Isle of Mull, and you take the, the bus all the way to the other side to the town of Finfort. Um, it looks like it's spelled Fianfort, but it's pronounced Finfort. And then you take a little ferry that takes you about 10 minutes to get across to the tiny little uh, Isle of uh, Iona, which I think is about three miles long and maybe a mile and a half wide. Um, they told us that the bus ride from where you get dropped off by the ferry after you leave Oban to the other end of Mole to catch the ferry to Oban is absolutely gorgeous. So of course, and the, you can, there's a lock on your right side, and then you have the Atlantic Ocean that appears, and the vistas and the views are unbelievable, but it was absolutely pouring down rain through that the entire uh, drive across. It was about an hour or so, uh, hour and a half drive across the Isle of Mole. So we saw nothing but rain and fog and heavy clouds while our bus driver was hilarious. I mean, he just, he just uh, was a joke a minute. But we get to the, um, to the end of the Isle of Mull to get on, we get onto our ferry. While we're on that ferry, that little 10 minute ride over to the Isle of Iona, the sky's cleared. Mostly you can see there in the photo. The sky's cleared. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Now, I, I don't believe in that sort of God did that for me. I mean, that I'm sure that the people who were there before us didn't appreciate the rain that God was doing that, the rain to them. <clears throat> but we experienced it as a blessing. And it really was a blessing to uh, have a couple of hours on this uh, sacred and holy place. Next slide. This is our walk on the way uh, to, to the uh, Abbey. Uh, that's looking back across uh, the bay towards uh, Finfort where we were dropped off. You can see how beautiful it is. Next. No, this is, that, that was Ireland. This is, this is Scotland. Next slide. Uh, that's the Abbey in the, in the distance there. Um, St. Columba came to the Isle of Iona in 563. Uh, he was uh, an Irish priest and warrior and, and military person. Um, who uh, got into a conflict over a, a copy of the Psalms. They actually had, a, there was actually a, a sort of a battle over someone having this copy of the Psalms and they didn't want to have it. And uh, although his side won and was victorious, he was sickened by the bloodshed. And much like George MacLeod, who I mentioned earlier at the start of the night, became very much a pacifist and established this monastery on the Isle of Iona in 563, um, uh, as we say now, CE in the common in the common era. Let's, this is not the original monastery, by the way. Go ahead. This, this monastery is only like 900 years old. Next slide. There it is. Now we're, now we're coming up on the, on, to, the, to the monastery. You can see another Celtic cross on the right-hand side there as, as you enter. And again, just look at how green and gorgeous everything, everything is. Temperature was about 55 degrees. Um, but they, they say in Scotland, uh, dress for all four seasons every day, which was pretty much true. Next slide. Another shot. I, apparently, I really like Celtic crosses. Ne next one. I put this in there for fun. This is the front row of the chapel. Can you see what that sign says on that pew in the front row of the chapel? Wouldn't it be nice to have to reserve the front row of our pews? 
That's the only reason I put that in there. I just, it just cracked me up. It is a working church. It is a functioning faith community. Uh, there are only about 200 people who live on the Isle of Iona. Uh, that, that goes up, in the, especially in the summertime, when a lot of folks come and spend three or four days there, or sometimes even three or four weeks, and get engaged with uh, the folks who are part of this, this community so that you can, you can worship there. Uh, there are opportunities to, to worship and pray and all sorts of um, spiritual retreats and things. I've been looking at some different uh, ideas, possibly for my sabbatical coming up in a few years. My next sabbatical, which is a few years away still. And Iona is one of those places where you can go and spend a week and be in prayer and, and study, et cetera. It, it's, I, can, I can imagine it would be a, uh, an amazing experience. All right, next slide. This was kind of a cool moment. That's me there. Um, uh, this was kind of a cool moment. I wanted to go in there. We'd, we had, I had spoken to Sally Besky about three days before when we were in Glasgow. We just found out about her terrible diagnosis uh, with the cancer that, as most of you know, or many of you know, uh, to eventually took her life a, a couple months later. And she, she asked me to pray for her. And maybe some of you heard this from her as well. She asked me to pray that her death would be peaceful, that she would have time with her family, time with her loved ones and her friends, but that she would have an experience of, of God's peace. When we walked into the chapel here, that's the altar, that I'm facing. By the way, we don't have an altar. I hear people say it once in a while. We don't have an altar in the, in the congregational church tradition. Uh, we have a communion table. Um, if you want a, an hour-long nerdy description about why that is, I can talk to you later. Um, but this is the altar in their, in their tradition. And what was really cool about this moment, sort of like the sun, rising, uh, sun coming out, there were probably 15, maybe as many as 25 people in there before, being quiet, respectful. Some people were praying. But pretty, all of a sudden, I don't know why, they left and I had a, about two minutes to myself. And I was able to pray for Sally there in that moment, and I was able to, to offer a prayer for First Community and, and, and our, our amazing uh, congregation of members and friends. Uh, and you can see the sun was, was brightly shining through that window. Next slide. This was, uh, I, I can speak for me, I won't speak for Julie, you can, you can talk to her later. This was a, a, a wildflower garden just outside of the, of the, um, uh, of the Abbey. Uh, absolutely beautiful, and my, my photography doesn't capture the, the, the wildflowers. It's, it was just so amazing to sit there. You can see that, that the reeds or whatever those are sort of bending in the wind. There was a, there was a pretty strong breeze blowing. But I, I had, we had a moment together, and I, and I just had this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And it sounds weird to say this, but we watched the nine o'clock service from here in Grace Hall on my phone, or maybe it was Julie's phone, while sitting in that spot. And that was the first time that the congregation became aware, the wider congregation became aware of Sally's diagnosis and what she was facing. Mary-Kate Buchanan did a beautiful job of, of letting the church know about that. And some of you might remember there were prayer times and the sanctuary was open and all sorts of, of beautiful opportunities for people to be in prayer, to, to face their grief. But it was just it was just an amazing moment to be that far away from everybody here and yet feel like I was, I was right here with you. It was actually out in the, the tent. It was a tent service outside. I, and, and to be there in that moment. In fact, we, I, when the service was over, I looked down at my watch and said, our ferry leaves in five minutes. We got to go. So the, the, the deep connection kind of ended at that point. All right, I think that's the last slide. Next, next one. Yeah, um, so, so I wanted to do that just to kind of let you know about what, what we experienced in the summer and how that really rekindled this idea of, of connecting to 
um, what are very much in many ways my family's roots. My dad uh, says that we are Scotch-Irish. The Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is one of our two affiliate denominations, was founded by Scotch uh, Presbyterian um, uh, pastors who came to the United States in, in the early 1800s. The Disciples of Christ, by the way, you can win money at, the, at a bar bet with this, named the oldest denomination founded on American soil. Can you? I just said it. The Christian Church Disciples of Christ, oldest denomination founded on American soil. Not the oldest denomination, but the oldest one founded here. Just take a guess. What's the second oldest? Anybody know? Somebody say it? Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, second, second oldest. In fact, Sidney Rigdon was a friend of Alexander Campbell's, who was one of the founders of the Disciples of Christ, and that, but then he decided to follow Joseph Smith and got involved with um, his work. All right, let's get back to the point. Um, Celtics first appeared in history around 500 BC, uh, BCE. Uh, they were found from Ireland to Scotland to France to eastern Turkey. Uh, uh, to the Atlantic coastline of, of modern-day Spain. Uh, these Celts were sometimes referred to um, by the Romans as, as the Gauli, or as Gaels, or sometimes as Paganus or Pagani. Do you hear the root for the English word pagan there in that word? Um, uh, the word pagan really uh, originally was used as a... Um, uh, just a way of t describing a common person. It became pejorative after the, the Romans started using it to talk about uh, what we would call the, the Celts. The Greeks would call them Keltoys, by the way. That's where we get our pronunciation and our understanding of the English word. Um, that they were, they were very strange to the Romans. You know, the Romans built temples and had temples to their gods. And it was, they were also a very a male, patriarchal, dominant society. And uh, the Celtics were well-known... Uh, throughout uh, their history for recognizing the sacred and the feminine as well as the masculine. That it is the masculine and the feminine together that produces uh, um, a new life. Um, the, the Romans just thought all that was very, very strange. And so that's why that, that idea of the pogany or paganus uh, being, being very, very came negative and pejorative was that those, those silly pagans, they don't even have a place to worship. They worship in the woods or they worship in streams or they worship in fields. Um, uh, uh, which today we would kind of say that's a totally normal thing. But I want you to see that, that the Celtics really were spread all throughout um, uh, what we would call modern-day Europe and over on into um, uh, to the eastern side of, of modern-day day Turkey. Uh, Jennifer hinted at this in her, in her devotion. You know, when the Roman Empire uh, spread out up to, to um, England, uh, they, encountered, they encountered, that's when they really began to encounter a lot of these, these Celtic uh, folks. But it's around 400 or so when the Roman Empire, well, I'm sorry, around 300 when um, Constantine uh, makes Christianity the, the, the major <clears throat> religion of Rome, that they begin to, the, the Christian uh, folks, Roman Christians, begin to push the uh, Celts away and they end up, um, uh, many of them end up then in Ireland, what we would call Ireland, England, Wales, and, and Scotland. Um, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> I love this quote. This is from John Philip Newell's book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. The Celtic spiritual tradition is one that has long emphasized an awareness of the sacred essence of all things. And when he says long emphasized, he doesn't just mean Celtic Christianity. He means truly the Celtic spiritual tradition. It's something that has long emphasized an awareness of, of all, all things. 
just shout this out. I'm going to ask you a quick question here. Just shout out an answer real loud for me, if you will, and I'll repeat it. Um, where have you sensed this the most, this, this sense of the sacred, if you have, the sacred essence of all things, in a, in a short phrase or a quick sentence? The night before your son died, he believed truly that the essence of who he was would go on forever. I understand. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Somebody else. And, and you're okay despite that. No, I'm just kidding. Never mind. Native American. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Native American, sacred essence in all things. Anybody else? One more. Please, way back. Mm. In a forest you experience. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the forests on eastern or western Oregon, the, the coastal mountains are considered a rainforest. And I, I used to, Julie and I used to go there a lot when we were in college in, in Oregon. And it's amazing to be in that forest and hear all the difference after, especially after a rainfall and water's dripping, there's mist, there, the, once the rain stops, the animals are active and busy. It's a, it's a fairly sacred thing. Yeah, that is the idea here. All right, next one. Sacred conveys this, quote, Celtic way of seeing because it is a word that is not bound by religion. I, don't, I can't speak enough about uh, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or other religions, but I can speak about Christianity especially. Every major reform we've gone through, including all the way back to the time of Jesus, has been something that said the form of religion, of our religion, is dominating the essence of its spirit and its sacredness. You can even go back into, in, into the Hebrew Bible and find these kinds of ideas. In Hosea, for example, Hosea 6, Hosea has been railing against the people who have forgotten that it's about caring for the least of these, that it's about caring for those, for the, for the stranger, for the lost, and, and, and the outsider, and all, all the rest. And the people come to Hosea, and they say, we're going to improve our Sunday school lessons, we're going to get a better choir in the choir loft, and our worship services will be so much better, and we just, we just know that's going to really help us. And Hosea basically says, God hates all that stuff. I mean, Hosea is one of my favorite prophets because he says things I can't say in church. He basically says God hates all that stuff. What God demands is you and your love for God, your love for each other, your, your love for the world. I would, I would argue that every great reformation, especially in Christianity, has, has seen this sort of thing. The, the Martin Luther's Reformation was, there were so many traditions and so many things that had become a part of what was the only church, well, the primary church, I should say, the Eastern Church existed, was, was the, the Roman Catholic Church, that they'd forgotten who they were. His Reformation was about getting back to this sacred way of seeing, seeing the world. The Disciples of Christ, uh, the, my denomination that I grew up in, uh, really saw itself as a Reformation movement in the early 1800s. Um, for example, the Scottish Presbyterians used to require that before you could receive communion, you had to be interviewed by the lay leaders and the pastor. And if they approved of you and your faith and your practice, then you'd be given a token. And then on Sunday, when it was time for communion, you'd come up and give that token to whoever was serving to prove that you were okay. 
We are not going to do that at First Community Church anytime soon. The disciples of Christ said, no, it's Jesus who offers the invitation. It's an open table, which is the practice here, and, and all should be a part of that. Sacred conveys this Celtic way of seeing because it is a word that is not bound by religion. Uh, that's one of the beauties, I think, of, our, of the way we practice our faith is we try not to be too bound by our traditions. <clears throat> all right, next slide. I put this in there primarily because I wanted you to see the word etymologically. <laughs> Sacrilege means to try to take possession of the sacred, to use it for one, one's own ends rather than to reference, reverence it. Um, this kind of jumped off the page for me in John Philip Newell's book. Uh, again, shout out in a short phrase or quick sentence. Have you seen someone, some organizations, countries, persons in recent months, years, uh, who have tried to possess the sacred, sacred and use it for their own rather than to reverence it? Give an example, very short and brief. Somebody said, no, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> That's probably good. Okay. Anybody have a quick example? It's okay. It's okay. It's happening, it's, it's happening as we speak. That's the frightening thing. All right, go to the next one. Sacredness is the birthright of all that is. It is the grace that comes with existence. This is essentially what we say at the time we baptize infants. This is the power and the beauty of, of infant baptism. What we're saying when, when we baptize, whether it's me or Mary-Kate or Sarah Keats or, or Seth Stern soon, um, is, is that this child is a child of God. This child already carries within him or her. We'll see in Pelagius a moment how controversial this idea was 1,700 years ago. This child already carries the mark of God within who they are. It's, it's a beautiful and, and amazing part of Celtic spirituality. Okay, all right, now we're going to jump into Pelagius a little bit. Go to the next slide. Okay, stay there for a minute, for a moment. I want to, while we're here on Pelagius, you need to know about Irenaeus, who lived about 150 years or so before, uh, before Pelagius. Irenaeus was one teacher between, uh, uh, had one teacher between him and Jesus, or you could even say of, of the... Um, of the Apostle, Apostle John. Uh, Irenaeus is well known for three things. Number one, he opposed celibacy as a higher path to marriage. Already within the early uh, 200s, late 200s, there was this idea developing, it kind of comes from the Apostle Paul, that it's better to not be married, that celibacy somehow is a higher calling uh, than, than the, the gift of marriage. And you, I, I'm forgetting the quote from Paul exactly, but um, Paul does say at some point, that uh, if, you, if you can't uh, practice uh, celibacy and you're burning with lust, then it's better to marriage, to, to get married. Um, uh, I sent that verse to my, my dad. My dad did our wedding ceremony for Julie and me. I sent that verse to him in a, in a letter and said, this is what we like read at our, at our wedding ceremony. <laughs> my dad thought I was serious. We had a long conversation. No, Dad, it was a joke. This is before email days, you know, so it took like a week for him to get the letter and a week for him to write back, and then, then I had to call him on the phone and explain all that. Irenaeus was really fighting against the idea that somehow making that choice was better than those who, who could not do it. The second thing about Irenaeus, who's sort of the precursor to Pelagius, is that um, the theology that was developing was diluting the robust humanity of Jesus. 
One of the great mysteries of our faith is that Jesus, for many, is considered fully divine and fully human. And what was happening in the earliest days of the church, the earliest decades of the church, the, the divinity of Jesus was taking over from the humanity of Jesus and that sort of robust uh, humanity of, of who he is uh, was being lost. Um, where's Ed and Jan? Ed and Jan have kind of turned us on to the, um, uh, the, the series on Netflix called The Chosen. Have any of you, anybody else seen The Chosen? Um, it's really kind of cool. And what I love about it the most is that the humanity of Jesus is kind of front and center, at least the early episodes that, I, that I've seen. We'll see what happens uh, uh, later on. Then the third thing from Irenaeus, and you can, hear, you can see where this sounds like um, Celtic spirituality, the earth is sacred. Everything about the earth is, is sacred itself. So uh, now, now to Pelagius. Uh, he lived from 360 to 430 uh, uh, CE. Um, he was considered a heretic. At one point was banned. At a, at a later point, anyone who taught his teachings was banned from the church. Um, even 200 years after his death, uh, all thought about uh, Pelagius was to be banned and forbidden and, and never brought up again. What happens when you enforce bans on the truth? The truth finds a way, right? The truth finds a way. Next slide. So first of all, three, three misrepresentations of, of Pelagius. Um, I learned in seminary in 1984, 85, and 86, whenever it was we read all this stuff, uh, that Pelagius was just sort of this, this one-off crazy guy who really wasn't from anywhere. No one knew what his, where, where his writings were. There were no writings available. Um, and that's just not true. We actually have access now to many of his writings. Those have been discovered in, in recent years. The second misrepresentation was that there was no idea where he's from. That, that we didn't have any idea. Well, now we know that he, he was from Wales and spent a lot of time in, in Ireland as, as, as well. Third thing is that he believed there was no need for grace. That's a total misrepresentation. What he believed uh, was that grace was there to restore our individual sacramentalism. That the God, grace of God was not there because you're a bad person and that you need to be forgiven and you've been bad and you were born bad, but that you yourself are already sacred and God's grace comes to us as a way of reminding that us of the fact that we are already sacred and we're already a part of all that is and if all that is is sacred then then our very beings are a part of that here are three of the strongest criticisms and this is I'm serious about this this is crazy let's go to the next slide he taught women can you imagine and the, the criticism that came to him was, you're off doing, this is not me talking, you're off doing girly things like knitting or sewing or, or, or whatever it is, sewing perhaps, not knitting, doing all these things. Well, the men are doing the important things. Don't go off with the women and do this. This is, this is crazy. But Pelagius was very clear. He understood the feminine every bit as much as the masculine to be part of the sacred essence of God's nature and, and of God's creation. The second one was his hairstyle. If you can imagine such a crazy thing. Um, in, in Pelagius' day, I don't know about that. In Pelagius' day, the monks in Rome, or the, the priests in all in Rome, they would shave the center of their, the crown of their head and let the hair grow down on the side. What, what was that to represent? Anybody know? Anybody know what that was? I'll give you a hint with crown. Crown of thorns. Yeah, that was to represent they were like Christ wearing the crown of thorns. Nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. In his tradition, the Celtic tradition was you kept your hair on the top long and you shaved the sides and the back. 
And that somehow, though, meant that he was a pagan and a foreigner and a horrible person and a terrible, terrible one. Um, I preached a sermon once in, in Sandy Springs, Atlanta, where I was pastor for almost uh, nine years. And there was, a, there was a, um, a little bit of controversy in the church because kids were starting to dye their hair like purple or pink or whatever. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say this in the pulpit, but I wanted to. I wanted, because some of the people who were upset about this, most were people who dyed their hair, you know, blonde or dark black or dark brown, or was like, why, what, how is dyeing your hair a bad thing? Um, so one, in a sermon I got up once and I said, God is not worried about your hair. If it's too long or too short or too pink or too blue or too whatever, it's okay. It's not about the hair, ever. Here's why I'm telling you that story, just so you know. Fast forward about 10 years to our, our five-year-old being 15 years old in high school, and he grew his hair down to here. And one day his dad, Reverend Miles, said, you know, you really got to cut that. It just kind of looks dumb. I thought I heard a sermon once in Atlanta. <laughs> who, knew, who knew he was listening? Third thing, a newborn face reflects the face of God. The deepest in us, this is, I'm summarizing Pelagius' thought here, Pelagian thought, the deepest in us is of God. The idea that this would be criticized is somewhat crazy. But who was his number one critic? Anybody for, for a free plate of macaroni and cheese and a, and a brownie? Anybody know who the, who the number one critic of Pelagius was? Ed, please. No. Well, Calvin would criticize him later, but I mean when he was alive. Augustine. St. Augustine, and St. Augustine has messed us up. I mean, I, I, if you're Augustinian fans out there, then I'm, I'm very sorry, but um, um, I had to read Augustine in, in seminary. What was the primary thing that Augustine uh, uh, taught? Original sin. He's the guy who really came up with the idea of original sin, and, and, and um, that has dominated Western Christianity for uh, 1,700 years. Um, and, I, and I can say it that way and be that blunt and that direct because uh, part of the 18 months of therapy that Julie and I went through, for me in particular, was getting over that idea and, and really having to face the fact that that was messing with my brain. I would look at myself and see myself as an original sinner, born in sin, lived in sin, still stuck in sin, and I'm never going to get out of sin. Um, uh, and that was, that was while I was in the middle of doing my doctor of ministry. But that stuff was pounded into us so much, it just becomes a part, even though I didn't believe that uh, intellectually, Emotionally, it was a part of who I was, and it took a, it took it took a lot of therapy, and maybe still some more to, to get to get through that. Uh, um, so let's look at what uh, uh, oh Pelagius, by the way, wrote a note to uh, Saint Augustine in the midst of their controversy. He wrote to him, "Love peace, prize love, strive after harmony." The sad news is Augustine completely ignored that and continued his attacks on Pelagius. You know, I saw a, a, um, a, a excerpt of a, of a commencement speech by the governor of Illinois given uh, um, last year, in May, last May. And he said, his theory is, the smartest people you know are also the kindest. If they're well-educated and they know a lot of things, but they're not kind, they're not very smart. Uh, here's, here's Augustine being addressed in the midst of his attacks on Pelagius. And Pelagius writes to him and simply says, love peace, prize love, strive after harmony. 
and all Pelagius can do, or all Augustine can do is attack him. All right, let's go to a five-fold summary of his teachings, the next, the next slide. Uh, so we believe in the sacredness of, of the human soul. In other words, we are all the essence of God. He understood the sacredness of, of nature. All of nature represents God. Um, uh, John Philip Newell argues that if you really take these seriously, there's nowhere you'll see in the world that's ugly. You, there's nowhere you can go on the earth that, that, that is part of nature, whether it's a desert or the mountains or streams or, you know, even the Scioto River in the middle of, of the summer when, or when it's just running dark, dark brown. Even that has some, some beauty uh, to it. This, number three, the sacredness of spiritual practice and meditative prayer. Um, I read a great quote today that said, uh, Pelagius would instruct uh, his disciples, his students, his learners to pray until they cry. And that in the, in, the, in the tears you release, you release whatever it is that needs to be let go. Pray, pray until you cry. Number four, the sacredness of wisdom. I especially appreciated the Hebrew Bible and, and, um, and the book of Job. You know, um, there's a misnomer about Job. Job is sometimes considered, um, you know, people will say, oh, I've got, he's got the patience of Job. Job was extraordinarily impatient. Um, Job was impatient with God. He's impatient with his friends. He's impatient with every, his family, his wife, who was uh, the only one of his family who survived. He was just impatient as could all get out. But in that impatience, there are these amazing, powerful theological observations that, that Job makes. And Pelagius uh, relied very much on on. Um, uh, on, on the book of Job as a source of wisdom in his life. I mentioned the banning. Uh, Pelagius was banned in 418. In four, his teaching was banned. He was not allowed to teach. In 428, he was banned from Italy. He had to go back to, the, to, uh, to um, uh, Wales. In 640, they banned his teachers. And 200 years later, they, they banned his, his work. And it, and it, um, it did not work. Uh, it's still out there. The sacredness of compassion it leads towards the next slide. Let's put the next slide up, please. What you believe about Jesus isn't as important as becoming like Jesus. The church has fought wars. Seriously, the church has fought wars over what we believe about Jesus. And what did Jesus teach in Matthew 25? Do you know Matthew 25 off the top of your head? Parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus comes to some folks who've been taking care of the... um, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the imprisoned. And he says, welcome. You're welcome into my kingdom. And they're like, what did we do? How, how come? Because when you did it to these, it was like you were doing it to me. And then he comes to those who have ignored all those people all their lives. And he says to you, you'll be sent into eternal torment. Don't take it literally, but do you see the point Jesus is making? There's not a single word in there about what they have to believe. There's not a single word about you should accept this theology. It's about becoming like Jesus. I, I remember my church in Kansas City who came to me and said, I'm an atheist, I, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And I come every Sunday because I want to be reminded of the compassion of, of Jesus. And I want to live my life in, in that way. As far as I'm concerned, she was every bit an active member in that church, whether she confessed her faith in Jesus or not. Let's go to the next one. All right, so roundtable discussion. We got about uh, 10 minutes or so left. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're kind of living at a critical moment of history. How will truly awakening to the sacredness of every person, regardless of gender, race, or religion, guide our interactions with one another? 
how will truly awakening to the sacredness of every person, regardless of gender, race, or religion, or any other thing you can think of, guide our interactions with one another? Okay? Go. Okay, for the last few minutes that we have, I'm gonna, I'll walk around with the mic. I'd love to hear from you. In order to allow time for other people to share, please keep your responses brief. One or two sentences max, okay? My preaching professor in seminary used to say, if you can't explain your sermon in one sentence, you have more than one sermon. So we don't want more than one sermon. We just want one or two sentences, okay? Anybody who would like to, is anyone who'd like to share what they had? I'm going way back here to Jen. And I, and I get to hold the mic too. Please. Uh, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious, not judgmental. Who is that? That's um, Ted Lasso. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Ted, Ted Lasso is the answer to many of our problems. Be curious, not judgmental. Somebody else. Gospel according to Ted, yes. Being more patient. Being more patient. I want patience now. <laughs> Somebody else. Oh, okay. Yeah, I need, I need my steps. Um, I was saying it was um, kind of an opportunity to pause and see everything as a, either an expression of love or a call for love. Getting philosophical with Kristen Anderson, either, either a call for love, either, either expression of love or a call for love. That's very good. It's very good. Yep, I'm getting the steps in. Go back to the Judy. I think you guys plan this every week. I'll sit over here and I'll sit there. Be vocal about who you love. Oh, be vocal about who you love. I love that too. Thank you. Got time for about two or three more. Anybody else? I think the ability to think critically helps. Critical thinking. Critical thinking helps, yes. I'll just be quiet and say yes. <laughs> yes, ma'am, you're spot on. One more. Here it is. You get the last word. Um, compassion, just bringing compassion into the world again to love thy neighbor, not fight thy neighbor. Bring compassion back into the world. Love your neighbor, not fight your neighbor. That's a good one to end on. Let's, let's have a prayer, please. And if you would, let's just start it with, just, oh, wait, well, one more. Okay. Hang on. Don't talk yet. Okay. Above all, be kind. Above all, above all, be kind. That's very good. Two words. That's a good sermon. Let's pray. But let's begin with just a moment of quiet. And in this moment of silence, um, say whatever you need to, to the spirit, to the higher power, to God, to Jesus, to whomever you pray. Let's just be quiet in this moment. Holy One, it is amazing what we can hear when we're quiet.
the footsteps of a child, the hum of the building, the sound of our breath, maybe even the beating of our hearts. Remind us that that sacredness lives within each of us and that we are indeed a part of your very heart as well. Give us a night of rest that we might return to being compassionate and kind on the day to follow. In Christ's name, amen. Good night, y'all.